0: I'll read verses 1 through 11, but my text today is just the first temptation, the uh, rebuff from our Lord. But beginning with chapter 4 and verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. A little boy was leading his younger sister up a very steep mountain path, and the little sister was tired, and she began to complain about how difficult the way was, especially because the path was so bumpy, and her older brother said to her, The bumps Are what you climb on. That is part of the message of this sermon today that God uses a wide variety of circumstances to give us life. When this passage, when Jesus says, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God the word there that we have as word is actually thing everything that comes from the mouth of god all that comes from the mouth of god so this is not this is not an uh, an urging for you to know the bible better it's not exclusively that of course that's part of it but this is not saying you need to have daily devotions more than you need to have food the meaning of this passage of scripture is god uses a great variety of things, including the hunger that I'm now feeling, Jesus could say, including the hunger that I'm now feeling to accomplish his purposes. It's not all bread. It's not all prosperity that reveals the hand of God. God's hand and God's direction and God's leading is demonstrated in everything that happens to us. As we just sang, sometimes mid scenes of, of, of deepest gloom. Sometimes where Eden, Eden's bowers bloom. Now, there's a contrast. The deepest gloom. We don't like to be there. We want to be where Eden's bowers bloom. But it's not always like that. By, by waters still. By troubled sea. It is God's hand that leadeth me. And so, the main message of this sermon this morning from this text is that God uses A combination of blessings and adverse circumstances, things that we would rather avoid, he uses these things to give us the life and to cultivate in us the life that he has given to us. You're familiar with John Newton a little bit, some of you more than others. At least everyone in here has heard the song Amazing Grace written by John Newton. Another hymn that he wrote is the one that I'm getting ready to quote to you. I need to identify a couple of things. I'll just give you the gist of the hymn before before I quote it. Uh, Newton says at first he is asking God to bless him with grace and love and with, with various blessings. And uh, he is surprised at the way that God does answer his prayer. God does answer the prayer, but he answers it in a surprising way. And Newton describes that surprise. One reference that he makes that you may not be familiar with is when Jonah was uh, waiting outside the city of Nineveh to see what God would do, God caused a gourd to grow over his head and shield him from the sun, and uh, Jonah was glad because of the gourd. But that night, God sent a worm that ate, ate the vine, and the gourd withered, and so the next day, Jonah was sad because he no longer had that shady place to rest. So in this hymn, uh, uh, Newton refers to that God blasted my gourds, and that's what he's talking about, things that were giving me comfort that I was appreciating. He he blasted them, and blasting there does not mean like gunpowder kaboom, but uh, when a, when a flower is cut down, it's, it's in the old days, called blasting, so you, you, the flower is blasted when it has withered. I ask the Lord that I might grow in grace and faith and love and every grace. Might more of His salvation know and seek more earnestly His face. Twas He who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as nearly drove me to despair. I thought that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. So just to summarize, he he thought God is going to just zap me into a state of holiness and give me these graces. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. So he says, what's going on here? All these troubles are coming. And then the next stanza gets even worse. Yea, with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds, and laid me low. Why is this, Lord? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to dust? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayers for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from sin and self to set thee free and cross thy earthly schemes of joy that thou mightest seek thine all in me. And I think that, that is, that's the message that uh, Jesus gives us in the way that he rebuffs this, rebuffs this temptation of the devil. Uh, when he says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I, I think that this highly mysterious statement of Jesus will become quite clear once we consider the backstory. So what is behind this statement, as it's found, in we read it just a few minutes ago in Deut- Deuteronomy chapter 8, there are in fact two stories that have to do uh, with, with this passage of scripture. So let's first of all think about the backstory. Then we will look at the temptation, the way that Satan attacks Jesus here. We'll look at Thirdly, the way that Jesus rebuffs this temptation. And then finally, a couple of words of application. So first of all, the backstory story concer- concerns an event that happened in, in the first few weeks after the children of Israel came out of Egypt. We, we could read about this. I'm not going to have you turn there now. I'll tell you the story in Exodus chapter 16, but you could read it there. So just, I think, the, the, the second month after they've come out of Egypt, then they begin to complain that they don't have anything to eat. And uh, they even say, would to God that we had died in Egypt where we had plenty to eat rather than you dragging us out here in the wilderness to die of starvation. And God hears their complaints, hears their grumbling, and he says, "I'm going to send you bread and meat." And uh, so he sends them manna. Exodus chapter sixteen. We read about the manna coming, and then also he brings in some quail, and uh, the children of Israel are are, are able to eat quail. Uh, not, but anyway, the manna is the main is the main point that I want to make here. That's a part of this backstory. And the Lord says, "I'm sending you manna." that I may test you. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? I'm sending you something good that I might test you. We have a tendency to think of testing coming only in the form of adversity, and that's one of the main points of this sermon. But it also is significant. In fact, the main point is that God sends a, mi- a mixture of, of blessings and adversities in the process of giving us life and cultivating that spiritual life in us. It's a mixture of things. And so what we're seeing first is that the Lord says, I'm sending you this manna to test you. And there are two ways that they were tested by the sending of the manna. One way was the Lord said, You are to gather only as much as you need for one day. Don't try to keep it overnight. And then the second thing is, on the seventh day, I'm not going to send manna. And so gather twice as much on the sixth sixth day of the week, and then it will keep overnight. Well, the children of Israel disobeyed in both cases. God blessed them with with this great blessing of manna. And some of the people tried to keep it overnight. And the Bible says that by morning it had bread worms and stank. And uh, then on the Sabbath day, there were people who went out and tried to see, isn't there going to be some manna here for us today? So in both cases, in in a situation of prosperity, the Lord put them to the test and they failed the test. But he continued to send the manna until the time that they uh, crossed over Jordan to enter into the promised land. Now, I do want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. That was our first scripture reading today. And uh, the, the account about the manna coming happens in the first few weeks after the children of Israel have come out of Egypt. And now they are just getting ready to enter into the land. And there is a second giving of the law. And uh, that's what the that's what the word Deuteronomy means. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy means second, and Namos it means law. So Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. And uh, so now forty years have gone by since they've come out of Egypt, and uh, Moses is reviewing some of the things that have happened, and. And he reviews giving the manna. So what are some of the reasons that God gave the manna? And how does God use this combination of blessing and adversity to cultivate in us the spiritual life that, that he wants us to have? Well, let's just pick it up with verse 2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you. All right, so... They were in the wilderness for 40 years, and they were in the wilderness for 40 years because they refused to enter the land when they were supposed to enter the land. So when it was time for them to enter the land, uh, they sent spies into the land, and there the spies saw that it was a good land. They brought home a cluster of grapes that they carried on a pole between two men, and it was so long that the cluster of grapes reached all the way to the ground they said it really is a land flowing with milk and honey but the people who live there are giants and there's no way that we can there's no way that we can conquer them and uh, Joshua and Caleb who had gone into the land said yes we can do it with the lord's help and let's go in let's take the land but the the 10 skeptical spies carried the day and the people of israel never went into the promised land when they were supposed to go in And so God said, well, because of that, that, because you wouldn't believe me, then you're going to have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And they said, oh, in that case, we're going to try to to go into the land. And the Lord said, no, I'm not going to go with you. If you try it, you're going to get a whooping. And uh, so the next morning they tried it, and sure enough, they got a whooping. The people of the land of, of Palestine chased them out, and they spent the, the forty years wandering in the wilderness, now, even though it was as a result of their disobedience, God, God here says, "I had purpose in that happening i 'm not responsible for your disobedience, but I had purpose in in the bad decision that you made and the uncomfortable circumstances that came from it. And He says he did this that he might humble you. Now I think this is probably, this surely ought to be very comforting to us. There are disastrous circumstances sometimes in our lives that are a result of our disobedience to the Lord. And uh, we just like the children of Israel, they wandered in the wilderness because they disobeyed. And God said, well, there are consequences to that. And we we make bad decisions. We make bad choices. And then Sometimes years of our life are gobbled up. Forty years! But the Lord says, I had purpose in that. I'm not responsible. I'm not the one who made you do the sinful thing. I'm not the one who made you make the sinful choice. But I had purpose in that. And that purpose was to humble you. Because as long as you and I think that we are okay, as long as you and I think that we're pretty good, and as long as you and I are plagued by pride, then we're always going to be focusing on the wrong things. We're going to be focusing on the things that cause us to feel even more proud. And we're going to neglect, we're going to neglect spiritual things. And so God sends a combination of blessings and adverse circumstances into our lives, first of all, so that he might humble us. And then secondly, there in verse 2, he says, Moses says, Testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna. You see, there's the combination. There's the glory be to God for dappled things. this, This combination of sunshine and cloud. He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. And then we'll just pause right there. The second reason that God sends this combination of of adverse circumstances with blessings is because he's testing you to know what is in your heart. Now, God knows all things, and so God's not uh, curious about the outcome. Here's the point that is being made. As long as things are going great in your life, it's hard to tell if you are really living by faith. It's when hard times come, and you still cling to the Lord that you know and others know. And according to this passage of Scripture, God himself recognizes this person really is dedicated to me because they have stuck with me through the hard times, through being hungry and, uh, and through being grieved, through, through having daily vexations, this person continues to come and look to me. And so the Lord sends this combination of light and darkness in our lives So that he might test us and and give us the opportunity to show that through thick and thin we are on the Lord's side. I'm always thinking about faith. I'm always thinking about what is faith. And uh, so those of you who have been listening to me for the last four years know my go-to definition is that faith is believing what God has said especially when the only reason you have for believing it is because God has said it. But that, that's, that's the beginning of faith. Faith also is, I am going to stick with God through thick and thin. I believe what God has said, especially because God has said it. And I am going to stick with God through thick and thin. I, I am listening and reading the, the Gospels over and over this year. And uh, Joe Blandford has made available recordings of the, the New Testament. That's such a blessing. Um, I, Joe even gave me a little speaker so that I wouldn't have to use uh, earbuds. And uh, that has been such a blessing. I listen to that when I'm uh, fixing food or fixing my tea in the morning or sometimes even driving in the car. I just have that little, that little blue speaker and I'm listening to the New Testament. And I hear Jesus saying some things like this. So this woman, who has an issue of blood, comes up and touches the hem of his garment. And Jesus stops and says, who touched me? The disciples say, there's a crowd jostling all around you. How can you say who touched me? And Jesus says, I know that someone touched me. I felt power go out. And then the woman, seeing that she could not be hid, came forward and told Jesus what had happened. She had thought, oh, if I just touched the hem of his garment. That I'm going to be made well. And so she tells what had happened and how that when she touched the hem of his garment, she felt immediately that her issue of blood was dried up. And Jesus says to her, Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. What faith? What What did she believe? Your faith has saved you what she was saying is i am going to get on jesus side i'm not exactly sure who this man is i know that he has power to heal but i am going to be i'm going to be jesus follower from now on she touches the hem of his garment she doesn't she does i guess she doesn't know theology or i think about that woman who who came uh, When Jesus was reclining at the table in a Pharisee's house and this woman who had lived a sinful life in that town came in and she starts crying over Jesus' feet. And the Pharisee thinks, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. And Jesus, knowing what Simon the Pharisee was thinking, said, I have a question for you, Simon. What is it? Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 50 denarii and the other 500. He forgave the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon said, well, I suppose the one who had the greater debt forgiven. And Jesus said, you have answered correctly. And then he turns to the woman and he says to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house You did not wash my feet, but she's washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not put any oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you that her many sins are forgiven, for she loved much. For he who has been forgiven little loves little, but he who has been forgiven much loves much. And then he says to the woman, Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. What did she believe? I don't know. I think that Jesus had been preaching in the street one day. And this woman, who was an outcast, had positioned herself somewhere behind a pillar around a, the corner of a building so that she could listen without people giving her dirty looks. And she heard Jesus saying, No matter what you have done, if you will repent of your sin and trust in me and come to me, I will forgive you of your sin. You can be right with God. I don't care how many enemies you have made. I don't care how disappointed your family may be in you. You can be forgiven if you will repent and trust in Christ. And this woman heard that and she said, Oh God, I believe it. I believe it. This man, this man is the way that I can be right with God. And so when she had the opportunity, she goes into the house and she just can't get over the fact, this man has made it possible for me to be right with God. This man has made it possible for me to be forgiven of my sins. And she just is broken up with gratitude. And she she weeps. And that's why Jesus said, This is evidence that her great sins have been forgiven. Jesus is not at that moment saying, I forgive you. He says to her, Your sins have been forgiven. Because anybody who loves me this much has already moved into the realm of faith. You've come to my side, you've come to God's side. And so God sends blessings and God sends adverse circumstances to test us and to see whose side are you on. Do you know what jostles out of you when you're agitated? Whatever you're full of. One of the reasons that God sends this is to test and he says, he, sent, he did this so that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word, or the Hebrew says by all, by all that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And as I explained in my introduction, this is not talking specifically about the Holy Bible, it's talking about the providential circumstances and the understanding of truth that God brings about Uh, to, to form in us a life that is increasingly devoted to him and increasingly set free from the fretfulness and the worries of bread and the things of this life. So he humbles us. He lets us be hungry and feeds us so that we might know that he is in control of it all. And then... Verse 5 gives another reason why God deals with us this way. These all things that come from the mouth of God. It's so that we might learn to recognize in Him the heart of a father. And that we might know it in our hearts. Verse 5 says, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. It's not enough that we should just on the surface, believe the truth, but in our hearts, be convinced God has my best interest at heart. Even in these unpleasant circumstances, God is in control and God is using this to accomplish His purposes in my life. And then, one final thing that I get from Deuteronomy chapter 8 for the backstory. And the back story is the the largest part of this sermon because it's going to be easy once we turn back to Matthew 4 after having gone through Deuteronomy 8. The last thing that I get from Deuteronomy 8 is that these adverse circumstances, these hungerings, make you ready to go into the promised land. So it says in verse 6, So you shall keep the commands of the Lord your God by walking in His ways and by fearing Him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a land land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills. And he goes on to describe what a wonderful land it is. With mercy and with judgment. Both of those. With mercy and with judgment my web of time he wove. And I The dews of sorrow were lustered with his love. I'll bless the hand that guided. I'll bless the heart that planned. When throned where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. One day we will be able to look back on the trials of this life. On all of the hungerings in the wilderness, all the sadnesses, and say, heaven was won at a cheap rate. <laughs> if I had to go through all of this in order to enjoy this, what a, great, what a great bargain that was. I don't want my comment to give any indication that somehow you earn the right to go to heaven because of the sufferings that you go through. That's not the case. I'm just saying that once you have been sanctified, one of the processes that the Lord, one of the things that the Lord accomplishes through these adverse circumstances, is to make us have less to do with this world, and look more to the next world. I quoted uh, just a minute ago a stanza from uh, "The Sands of Time Are Sinking." Uh, another stanza goes like this: "Oh, well, it is for forever, well, forevermore." My nest hung in no forest of all this death-doomed shore. I never did build my nest here like I was going to stay here forever. I've always known that this is a temporary residence. Do you know it? Are you living like it? One of the purposes of sadness and sorrow is to make you remember this world is not my home. I'm just a stranger passing through. So that's the backstory, and now it should be easy to understand what perhaps you have never understood before. When Satan says to Jesus, "Don't trust in God. You've got to take the bull by the horns here." His temptation really is twofold, and then you understand Jesus' answer better. Satan says, "You're hungry." And uh, Satan approaches this temptation through a natural, non-sinful craving, not sinful to be hungry. Jesus, after 40 days, when perhaps through the 40 days he was sustained in a supernatural way by the Lord, not to be distracted with hunger. Now at the end of the 40 days, he's very hungry. And uh, Satan comes and says, well, let's just talk about that hunger. Let's talk about this, this legitimate craving that you have. And let me tell you how you can take care of that. And Satan, this is one of his most common temptations. It is the temptation to underconfidence. The next temptation is one to overconfidence. And the third temptation is one to misplaced confidence. But this is the temptation to underconfidence. You cannot trust God in this circumstance. If God was going to help you, he would have helped you by now. And so you have got to take this situation in hand. And uh, the way Jesus rebuffs this temptation, I mean, there are a number of things that he might have said. He might have said, I have laid aside the independent exercise of my divine powers, which he did. But that's not what he said. He might have said, I will never work a miracle for my own selfish interests, which would be true. And he never did. He might have said, I am never going to work a miracle at the request of my enemies to try to prove something to them. And that would have been true. Uh, And he never did. But what Jesus does say is he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word, everything, by all that proceeds from the mouth of God. I am going to trust in God's leading me here, and God's providing for me here in the way that he has ordained. The Bible says that it was the Spirit who led him out into the wilderness. One of the other evangelists says the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. And so this was, as I told you a couple of weeks ago, this was part of his being qualified to be the Messiah. Since paradise was lost through one man succumbing to temptation, now paradise will be regained by man who's proved himself worthy to be the Messiah by resisting and overcoming temptation. And so this is a a very important part of Jesus going through the qualification process to be all that God had appointed for him to be and to do all that God had appointed him to do. Uh, And and so Jesus knows God is in control here. God has a plan for this situation. I am going to continue to have confidence in God. I'm not going to succumb to your temptation to have little confidence. I'm going to continue to trust in you. And he simply quotes the Scripture. Now, he doesn't use the Scripture the way an exorcist in a movie might hold out the Bible or the way that uh, someone who's trying to kill a vampire might hold out the Bible, like some kind of talisman or some kind of good luck charm or, or, or magic thing. That's not the way Jesus uses the Bible here. It's clear that Jesus has thought thoroughly about Deuteronomy chapter 8 and has realized God sends adverse circumstances and blessings for good purposes. And when I'm going through adverse circumstances, I need to continue to hold on to the goodness of God. This is the way we have it in one of our favorite hymns. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. I would say that most of the time when someone is on a ship that is being blown and tossed by the wind and they have put out the anchor... They cannot see where the anchor holds on the ocean floor. They can't see it. But nevertheless, they get to the end of that anchor chain and the ship stops. The wind blows them back and forth and back and forth, but then they get to the end of that anchor chain and boom, stop again. The anchor is holding. And we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. The Lord Jesus Christ has entered The the holy place for us on our behalf. And we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. And there are times when the winds of life under the direction of God are going to be blowing us back and forth. But then, please God, you hit the end of that chain and you stop. And you say, I cannot, I cannot go away from Jesus. In John chapter 6, Jesus gave some very unpleasant, unpalatable teaching, unpalatable when he said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood or you have no life in you. And at that time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him any longer. And so Jesus turns to the 12 and says, will you also go away? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He hit the end of the anchor chain. Other people weren't anchored there. And so they were able to float off. They were able to drift off. But Peter said, No, you have the words of life. We can't go away from you. I want to stick with you. When Jesus uses the word of God... He has an understanding of the principle that is taught there in Deuteronomy chapter 8, that God is in control of all circumstances. So we've seen the backstory, We've seen the temptation. It comes through natural channels. It comes with the temptation to under-confide in God. And then Jesus answers it with, uh, with the word of God and saying, I'm going to continue to trust in God. And, of course, the application is easy. Sooner or later, you're going to be in a storm. Sooner or later, maybe now for some of you, you are in the desert and you are hungry and you just say, I don't know where my next meal is going to come from. And Satan whispers in your ear, well, you know, if you just would be rid of all this religious stuff, you could take care of this problem in a finger snap. That is the same temptation. You know, why don't you just, you can go back to your old ways, you can go back to your old friends, or you can kind of um, fudge a little bit on this assignment, or you can cook the books just a little bit and everything's going to be okay, or I know things seem tight here, you know, if you just took that job that would have you working, I know you'd have to work on Sunday and miss church, but the people would understand. And... Of course, a man's got to feed his family, and so if I need to work 80 hours a week, then, then I'll do that. I was reading B.H. Uh, Carroll <clears throat> on this passage of Scripture, and he was talking with a man who had a, uh, a dishonest business, and the man says to B.H. Carroll, Well, you know, a man's got to live, and B.H. Carroll said, Well, not necessarily so. A man does not necessarily have to live. But while he does live, he has got to live in an honorable way that brings glory to God. And uh, so we can find all kinds of ways. God is not going to help me here. And so I've got to do this thing that I know is not wise. But, oh, it'll just be for a little while. We'll just make a few stones into loaves of bread here. and And then I'm going to go back. But that's rarely the way that it happens. When you hear that chain tighten and you jolt at the end of that chain, just know it's the Holy Spirit saying you don't belong to the world anymore. You're not supposed to be floating around aimlessly on the ocean of this life. You're not supposed to live by bread alone. Even this adverse circumstance I'm going to use for your good. Now, I quoted a few minutes ago from John chapter 6, and that is where Jesus tells us about the bread of life. And so let me conclude with reminding you of what Jesus said there. He had fed the 5,000 the day before, and now all these people came to him on the other side of the lake saying, feed us again. And Jesus says, and Jesus says uh, I tell you the truth, you're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. And then he says this, Do not work for the food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man gives you. And so they said, Well, uh, what will you do uh, to prove your authority to speak to us this way? What are the works of God? And Jesus said, The work of God is this to believe in the one he has sent. That's where it all starts. So, before you start getting all these ideas of how you're going to clean up your life and then come to Jesus, no. You have got to come to Jesus just as you are. Hear the words of an old hymn Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Why do you think it is that you're so weak and wounded, so sick and sore? It may be because God has humbled you for this very moment. Jesus ready stands to save you. Full of pity, love, and power. Let not conscience bid you linger. That means don't think, I'm too bad to come to Jesus. Remember that woman who was slinking around the corners of buildings and hiding behind pillars listening to the word of Jesus. He saves sinners like that. And don't think you've got to get better before you come to Jesus. Let not conscience bid you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. So come to him just as you are. Come to Christ. Eat the bread of life. Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. But whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, has eternal life. Amen. Jim Bob, come and lead us in a concluding hymn.